In about 13 hours' time, the Boston Marathon kicks off. The Boston Marathon is one of the uh, most popular marathons in the world. It's the one where we get the name Heartbreak Hill from. This year, they're expecting over 20,000 starters in the Boston Marathon. One of the people running in the marathon this year is Rick Hoyt. You may have heard of him. He's been in the news a bit. It's the 27th time that he'll be running the Boston Marathon. The thing is, though, Rick is completely disabled. He has cerebral palsy, so he can't talk. He can't eat. He can't even walk, let alone run. So how has Rick managed to complete the Boston Marathon 26 times? His father. His father pushes him the whole way in a wheelchair. Rick and his father are called Team Hoyt. And not only do they run marathons, they do triathlons. During the swim section, Rick is in a dinghy pulled by a rope round his father's waist. In the cycling section, he's sitting on a little seat on the front of the push bike. And in the running section, he's got the custom-made wheelchair. Now, I reckon Rick and his dad are a great illustration of what's going on today in Romans 3. Because Rick might finish the Boston Marathon tomorrow, but it won't be because of his own efforts. It'll be because of his father. He doesn't have to do a thing. He's completely disabled. It is his dad who will run the race for him. That's exactly what we're going to learn about God from Romans 3. When it comes to us being friends with God, it is God who runs the race for us. God has done everything possible for us to be made his friends. In fact, you can just see it even in the structure of the passage. Have a look at the outline. The first section is about not by law. In other words, it's not about what we do. And the second section is about it being God's free gift. Again, not about what we do. And the third section is that God's rescue in the rescue. God has done all the work. In other words, it's not about what we do. And that's why Rick Hoyt and his father are a great illustration of what is going on in Romans 3. It is God who runs the race for us. So point one on your outline. God's rescue is not by the law. And let's pick it up in Romans chapter 3. Verse 21, verse 21. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Notice that phrase, apart from law. By law, Paul who's writing Romans means the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments and the the commands around it. God's rescue is apart from law. That's important because I think our default position is that we think we can be right with God by doing things. That's what law means, doing the right things. But doing the right things cannot make us right with God because not one of us can perfectly obey the law. We can hear God's laws, we can read them in Exodus, you shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. Sometimes we even hear them read at church. You shall not steal. You shall not covet your neighbor's house and so on. But those laws cannot make us closer to God. All the law does is show us how bad we are. 
That's what verse 19 says. Look back with me back at Romans 3 verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. See, all the law does is silence us. It makes us all accountable to God. It declares us to be guilty. Last week in Romans 1, we saw how as humanity we reject God as our creator, we suppress the truth about him, and having abandoned God because we were made to worship, we actually then worship things around us. We fill our lives with everything else. We worship stuff that's created instead of the creator. Now, if we have all abandoned God and we're serving other gods, we haven't even got off first base. We can't even keep the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, let alone the rest. Jesus meets a bloke in Mark 10 who thinks that he's kept all the commandments since he was a boy. He's a real upstanding religious fellow. He thinks he's made it. He asks Jesus about getting eternal life. What is Jesus' response in Mark 10? No one is good except God alone. And that is exactly the point Romans is making. Look at verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. A couple of weeks ago I was down at Jimmy's having lunch with Daryl. Lovely lunch it was. Keeping an eye on the watch as I should because it was a one-hour parking zone. Finished up lunch in good time. Went to hop back in the car and then I saw someone across the road who I hadn't seen for ages. So I went and chatted to them. Time got away. I must have been there half an hour or an hour. Forgot all about the car. When I came back, you guessed it, I had a parking ticket. What was that parking ticket there for? Was it there to rescue me? No. It's there to tell me what I've done wrong. The parking ticket says what I've done wrong. I've parked for more than one hour in a one-hour zone. And it said what the punishment will be. $86. Don't do it. When we disobey God, that is exactly what the law does. It shows us what we've done wrong, we've disobeyed God, and it shows us what the punishment will be, death. The law is not there to rescue us any more than that parking ticket was there to rescue me. The law is there to show us what we've done wrong and it is looking forward to a day when God will rescue us. That's what verse 21 is about. But now, see, sinners, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. In other words, the law was looking forward to this. It was showing us that something better was coming that would rescue us. But when God's rescue does come, it's not by law. It's by something completely different. Verse 22, it's by faith. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. See, the opposite of law is faith. Because law is about what we do. Faith is about trusting what God has done. I think it's important to be clear about what faith is and what faith isn't. Faith is not some emotion that you need to work up inside yourself to be rescued. 
Faith is not something good in us that God looks out and he sees the good people who have to deserve to be saved and he rescues them. No, faith is simply trusting something. Faith, trust, they're the same thing. In this case, trusting Jesus. And when you've got faith in something, when you're trusting something, the most important thing is not your faith, but what your faith is in. See, faith is never alone. Faith is always in something or someone else. You don't just have faith. You have faith in something. I can have faith in my car, that it'll start. The car that we're trying to sell at the moment, I don't have faith in. It doesn't always start. You can have faith in the TV weatherman, or you can not have faith in him. You can trust him or not trust him. You can have faith in God, trust him, or you can not trust him. Take as an example this chair or the chair you're sitting on. If I trust that a chair will hold me up, then I have faith in the chair. I look at the chair. If it's got three legs, I won't trust that it'll hold me up. If it's a good four-legged solid chair, I'll trust that it'll hold me up. And if I put my faith into action and sit on the chair, what is it that's holding me up? Is it my faith or is it the chair? See, it's the chair that holds me up, not my faith. I can have a strong faith. I can have a weak faith. I can have a bit of faith. I can have a lot of faith. The important thing is what my faith is in and that I've acted on it. And if I'm sitting on that chair, the chair will hold me up. That's because the chair is a good chair. Now, it's the same with God. If your faith is in Jesus, that is what matters. You will be saved because Jesus is trustworthy. And it's Jesus that saves you, not your faith. The important thing is what you put your faith in. Now, that's why it's the opposite of law. Law is about what I do to be saved, how good I am, trusting in myself. Faith is about what Jesus has done, trusting in him. What has Jesus done? Well, the passage goes on to describe it in verse 22, and we're up to the second point. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. A few tricky words there. Redemption simply means to buy something back, to pay the price. Jesus has redeemed us. He's paid the price so that we can be justified. That's the second tricky word there. Justified just means declared right before God. The way I remember it is this, justified just as if I'd never done it. Justified. All my wrong is gone. See, the law shows us what we've done wrong. It condemns us. Jesus takes that wrong away. He justifies us. Just as if I'd never done it. Now, if that sounds good, Look at verse 24, it gets even better. We are justified freely by his grace. We're justified freely. It is a free gift. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word free, I get sceptical. When I answer the phone and someone says, hello, is that Mr Connor? We're offering you a free holiday. My first reaction is no, thank you, and I hang up the phone. 
I don't want anything free. I'm sick of free offers. They always have strings attached. Sign up to this uh, phone for two. Sign up for this plan for two years, and you'll get a free phone. Free phone. Come to this seminar, and you'll get a free holiday. That's not free. That's a con. But God's rescue is completely free. It really is. It is unlike any other free offer in this world. This is the big difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion is about what you do to make yourself right with God. Being a Christian is about what Jesus has done. It's the difference between do and done. Every other religion, what you do. Christianity, what Jesus has done. It really is like Rick Hoyt's dad pushing him all the way in the Boston Marathon. Rick didn't have to do anything. It's done for him. Easy for Rick. Not easy for his dad. Not easy for his dad as he pushes the wheelchair up Heartbreak Hill. And that's what the last two verses of this passage are about. Sure, it is a free gift, but it is a free gift that needed to be paid for. See, just because a gift is given to you for free, that doesn't mean that it's worth nothing. With a gift, a genuine gift, the price is paid by the person who gives it to you. don't know if Jill wants me telling you this, but back in March, she turned 40. And the, the family pitched in and we gave her a flute. Now, she didn't have to pay for it. It was a gift. It was a free gift. But the flute was paid for. Trust me, it was paid for. It cost $600. It was paid for by the rest of the family. Our gift is a gift from God, our rescue. But it was a costly gift, paid for by Jesus. Verse 25. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We seem to be getting into a new idea here. What is all this stuff about sins committed beforehand and God's forbearance? The point is this. Long before Jesus, God was forgiving people. God has always been a forgiving God. Think about Abraham. He was forgiven by God as a free gift. Who paid for that? Think about King David, who saw Bathsheba on the roof and committed adultery with her and then tried to cover it up by having her husband killed. King David was completely forgiven by that, washed as white as snow. Who paid for that? The answer is Jesus did. It is as if every time in the Old Testament God forgave someone, he was writing out a check or he was paying in advance on the credit card, all those things being added up. And that account was paid off when Jesus died on the cross. See, before Jesus, God in his patience, in his forbearance, was allowing those sins to go not paid for, for a time. Verse 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance 
he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. See, when God forgives sin, sin doesn't just magically disappear. It has to be paid for. And it was paid for when Jesus died on the cross. Jesus in his death was a sacrifice for us, for Old Testament believers, for everyone who will trust in him. He died in our place so that we can be made right with God. And God had to do it that way to be fair, or as Romans puts it, to be just. There's a story about Ahmad Shah, a leader in Afghanistan, who led his people into a fertile valley. This was a a great valley. It was protected all the way around by cliffs, so there was no way in for enemies. It, It was fertile, so there was plenty of food. And there was only one entry which Ahmad Shah had discovered, and it was a secret. Only he knew it. So when Ahmad Shah led his people into this fertile valley, he made one law. No one was to give away the location of the secret entrance. If they did, the enemies could get in. The punishment for disobeying the law was the worst possible punishment. hundred lashes of the Afghani whip, a punishment that no one survived. They move into the valley. Years go by, they live in peace. One morning, his commander comes to Ahmad Shah to his tent with some bad news. Sir, he says, we've caught someone breaking the most important law. Someone has given away the location to the secret entrance. Well, Ahmad Shah knows what is the right, the just thing to do. He gives the order, bring them in, have them beaten for everyone to see. The commander turns to leave. He turns back to Ahmad Shah and he says, Sir, there's one one thing you should know. The person who gave away the location, it's your mother. Now, if you were Ahmad Shah, what would you do? Would you let her off, show her mercy, show favouritism because you love her? Or would you do what you know is the right thing as king and punish her? Ahmad Shah has a sleepless night. The next day he gathers the court. He gives the order that he knows he has to give. His mother is brought in. She's stripped. She's tied up. The people around are shocked, but they realise he's done the right thing. But then after two lashes... He can't bear it anymore. He commands the flogging be stopped. He unties his mother. The people start whispering. We knew he wouldn't do it. Then he takes off his own robe. He puts himself where his mother had been. He says, the punishment is a hundred lashes. My mother has paid for two of them. I will pay the other 98. Now that is similar to what God has done for us. I say similar because it's not the same. God has not just taken 98 out of 100. He has taken all the punishment that we deserve. There is nothing left for us to bear. Verse 25. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Justice is fairness. God is just. So he can't let sin go unpunished. But God is merciful. And so in the person of Jesus, he takes 
our punishment for us. So if in tomorrow, by tomorrow, Rick finishes the Boston Marathon for the 27th time, it won't be because of his own efforts. He can't do a thing. It's because of his father. That is exactly what it is like with us. When it comes to us being friends with God, it's Jesus who runs the race for us. Let's make sure our faith is not in ourselves. Let's make sure our faith is in him. And let's live it out. Look at verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. See, can Rick Hoyt boast about running the Boston Marathon? No. But he can boast about his dad. Same with us. Can we boast about what we've done? No. But we can boast about Jesus. The fact that he's the one who rescued us. If there is anywhere, there's a place where we can't boast about how good we are, it is here, in a gathering of Christians. Everywhere you look around the world, there's a pecking order. People know who's the most important, on the cricket team, on the soccer team, with the, in the business world, the Fortune 500, even at the lowest level, in jail, criminals have a pecking order. If you watch that... um. That show, I forget the name, where the um, interior designs, is that what it is? The, the architect guy who goes, he goes into the slums. Even in the slums, he finds there a pecking order. But if there's anywhere where we must not have a pecking order, it's here. Imagine being part of a church family where because of God's grace to us, we treated each other with grace. We always forgave. We treated each other as more important than ourselves. If you think that you're important, think again. We all need saving. But if you think that you're not worth anything, if you think that you have no value, think again. Jesus thinks you're worth dying for. Let's pray. Father, as we are a week out from Easter, where we think about Jesus' death and resurrection, thank you for this reminder from Romans about what a wonderful gift that you've given us in Jesus. And Father, thank you that your rescue is not based on what we've done. Thank you that it's based on what Jesus has done for us. Father, please help us to put our faith in him. And as people who have experienced your mercy and your grace, we pray that you might help us to show mercy and grace to each other. We pray that there'd be no boasting among us, but that, like Jesus, we might love and forgive and serve each other. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.